0: This message comes from Jackson. Seek clarity in retirement planning at jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial, Inc., Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. Hey, it's Andy Grace, co-host of White Lies. Now that our second season's wrapped, we wanted to give you something else to listen to. It's a new series from NPR called Taking Cover. And one of the hosts, Graham Smith, was our producer on the first season of White Lies. In fact, it was just as season one was wrapping up that Graham was approached by longtime NPR correspondent Tom Bowman to help dig into a tip he'd gotten about a cover-up of a friendly fire incident in Iraq in the spring of 2004. It's a gripping story that they've been uncovering for years now. You can find the whole series in the Embedded feed. I'll let Tom and Graham take it from here.
1: Before we get started, you should know that this podcast contains graphic depictions of war, And we're talking to Marines, so there's a lot of cursing. Camp Pendleton in
2: Southern California is the West Coast home of the United States Marine Corps. 200 square miles of hills and wetlands and long stretches of beach just outside San Diego. On its edge, there's a sharp hill covered with scrub trees and bushes that overlooks the Pacific Ocean. It's called Horno Ridge. And over the last 20 years, it's become a place of pilgrimage, where Marines sweat and suffer to honor their dead. The hike up is steep and rocky, with two false summits. And at the top, a small field of crosses and memorials. Dozens of them, of all sizes. Some pieced together from tree branches or lumber, some weighing hundreds of pounds, each one carried up by Marines and sailors. Scott Radetzky has climbed Horno Ridge many times. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of keepsakes and mementos.
3: I mean, everything from a coin to a wedding ring to, you know, a medal, a purple heart, to, I don't know, bottles of liquor, you know, that were... were, um, uh, poured out, you know, a drink for
2: their, their fallen comrade. Radetzky is a retired chaplain. He doesn't like the messy piles of empty bottles and cans, but he knows they're only part of what people leave behind on the bridge. More important are the unseen burdens, the sorrow, the sadness.
3: The anger, regret. Ooh, here's a big word, shame. When someone dies and you don't, um, the grief that's there, survivor's guilt. And hopefully the lingering that takes place on the hill is part of that, that you can move past the horrific things that you've maybe seen or done.
1: Chaplain Radetsky got the Hilltop Memorial started in the spring of 2003. His unit lost a Marine in Iraq, killed just minutes after the invasion began. Months later, those Marines were back at Pendleton, preparing for yet another deployment to Iraq. And that death, it still hung over them. One day, the chaplain gets an idea. He finds some sections of old telephone pole and bolts them together. The Marines already trained on the ridge. He thought maybe the pain and suffering of carrying this massive cross up the trail could create a bond and they'd leave the cross itself on top as a memorial. So Radetsky and six others, two officers, two riflemen, and two medics, become the first to do just that. They carry the cross on their shoulders up until almost the end. The final stretch is so steep they have to push it, drag it, a foot or two at a time, until they reach the top. And they're the ones who inspired this field of crosses, which grows year after year as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan drag on.
2: In time, three of the seven men who carried and pushed that first cross up the trail in the summer of 2003 would themselves be memorialized on Horner Ridge. One was killed in a firefight in Baghdad, another by a roadside bomb. And that last Marine,
1: his death has always been kind of a mystery. A mystery we've spent the last three years investigating, not just because of this one man, others died with him, but because as we started to find out, it was all part of a greater tragedy, covered up by powerful people looking to keep the American public and even the families of those who died from hearing the truth. It's a story about mistakes, faulty assumptions, miscalculations, lies. This is Taking Cover from NPR. I'm Tom Bowman. And I'm Graham Smith. This is the story of our
2: efforts to learn about the lives lost and why families and even the men who were badly wounded still don't know the truth about what happened to them on the worst day of their lives. See the hole in the, yeah. the building?
4: It's like a square. And when they
5: launched that mortar, it hit boom. I mean, one out of a million shots.
0: We were sitting on those stairs, and he looked really pale and he looked shaken, and I don't think he'd slept. And he said, Doc, I think I fucked up. And I was like, Well, what, what did you fuck up? And he's like, Well, I can't really talk about it, but I think I fucked up. I think I fucked up.
4: They're hiding something for a reason, and they don't, there's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. There's got to be some. Why are they keeping it such? A, why did they keep it a secret to begin with? The fact that nobody has said anything concrete, no paperwork, nothing, and I'm just now finding out there was even an investigation—that's kind of un- unsettling. I don't care. So why he didn't tell us?
5: Why he lied to us? That's I wanna
1: know. Well, for us, this whole thing started with a tip, a stunning and disturbing allegation from a trusted source. How's it going? Uh, yeah, good. You? good, all good. That was a final security check. Now i in the building itself. The building, that's what people here call the Pentagon. I've worked here covering the U.S. military for the last 25 years. Walking along the E-ring. Typical morning, you see people in the hallway. Nothing's things in China?
0: That report came out. I learned from
5: NPR.
1: I might run into a colonel I knew in Afghanistan, or a general visiting from his overseas command who can tell me what's really going on. But there are some things, well, people just don't want to talk about in the building. So I might call them at home at night, or we might meet up at a bar, which is what happened one night at a whiskey bar in D.C., Actually, this very bar, a guy who spent a lot of time in Iraq, told me a story very few people knew. He told me that early in the Iraq War, there'd been this tragedy. U.S. Marines had dropped a mortar or a rocket on their own people. That's what they call friendly fire. Now, in this case, he said one Marine was killed and another seriously wounded. Friendly fire deaths, they happen. They happen in every war throughout history. That's not what made his story shocking. Here's the thing. He said that the marine brass had actually covered it up, bearing the truth about this terrible incident because he said the son of a powerful politician was involved in the screw-up.
2: Tom came to me the next day, asked if I could
1: help dig on this tip he'd just gotten. Since 9-11, Graham and I have spent years reporting from combat zones. We've gone on dozens of patrols. Dug foxholes together. And come under attack while embedded with Marines and soldiers. He's working on the investigations team now, and it felt like we could team up again. The source who gave me this tip, he was, you know, a little fuzzy on the details. said this Marine had been killed in the spring of 2004 in Fallujah. The Iraq War, if you lived through it, covered it, maybe fought
2: there, feels like it was just yesterday. But this is 20 years ago now, and we know for some folks, this is ancient history. Maybe you were five when it kicked off. So, very basics. The U.S. invaded at the beginning of 2003, and within a few weeks defeated the Iraqi army, though they never found any of the weapons of mass destruction that were the whole reason for going in. Chemical, biological, maybe nuclear. They found nothing. Still, the Americans occupied the country. They were running things. They figured they'd won. What they didn't realize, a new war was just beginning. Because a lot of Iraqis hated the American occupiers. They felt humiliated, brutalized. And this city of Fallujah, it's where the whole nature of the war started to change. It became the center of an insurgency that America would
1: fight To this day, really. So was there a friendly fire incident there? There was a major battle there in 2004 in the spring. didn't last long, just a couple of weeks in April. And these days, there are pretty good online lists of casualties. So we did what anybody would do, quick Google search. It was a deadly month, both for Iraqis and for the U.S. Nearly 150 American troops were killed, 27 of them in Fallujah, that narrow things down a bit, but still, none were listed as friendly fire. Nothing seemed to fit. For weeks, we poured through small town newspaper obituaries and press releases the Pentagon sends out whenever a service member is killed. Finally, we got a break.
2: It was on one of those memorial web pages, like the ones funeral homes set up for family and friends to leave condolences. Only this site is for fallen marines and the entries for two different Marines killed on the same day, Robert Zurhide and Brad Shooter, actually told a different story from the military press releases. Each of the two pages said the Marine was killed by friendly fire rather than hostile, like the military reported. And they were both from the same unit, Echo Company 2nd Battalion 1st Marine Division, or as the Marines would say, Echo 2-1. And another thing caught our attention... A comment from someone named Corporal Gomez Perez. He wrote, April 12th is always on my mind, and every time I think about it, I just get mad.
1: Man, it's bullshit what happened. Now, the initial tip was one dead, one wounded. But here we have two Marines from the same unit who died on the same day. Was this the friendly fire? We filed a records request with the Marines looking for any information about this incident. Was there an investigation? Now, this is where things get weird. It usually takes months to get an answer from the government, but here, after just a couple of weeks, we got a response. A thorough search was made, the letter said. No records on file. No records? It made no sense. Look, the military investigates and documents everything, whether it's a major screw up or just someone losing a piece of gear. Two Marines killed? Even if it wasn't friendly fire, there should be some record of the day. We filed an appeal asking them to look again. It was incredibly frustrating. But you know what? There are other ways. I started asking around at the Pentagon, calling up, both active duty and retired officers, especially those who served in Iraq. Have you guys ever heard about this? Who was involved? We'll hear
2: more about that later. With Tom working the brass, I went looking for grunts, the guys who served in Echo Company. I dug through books about the fight in Fallujah, including one called No True Glory. I knew the unit, Echo 2-1, and the names of the Marines who died, plus a date, April 12th. But across 378 pages, there is no mention of a friendly fire incident that day or any other. In fact, no mention of April 12th at all. It was as if nothing had happened that day in Fallujah. But I did find one clue. That Corporal Gomez Perez from the memorial webpage? There's a picture of him in the center of this book, staring into the camera, half his shoulder torn away by a bullet. The book says he was with Echo 2-1. Between that and the comment, April 12th is always on my mind and every time I think about it I just get mad, I figured that corporal, Carlos Gomez Perez, must have been with Shooter and Zerhide when they were killed. I found a number and called him. He was on the road. He works in the cannabis industry now. We set up a time to talk the next day. That's ahead on Taking Cover from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Shop for your next car the convenient way. 100% online with Carvana. Getting pre-qualified takes less than two minutes. Then see your real terms as you shop. Visit Carvana to finance your dream car the convenient way. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Some good stories come out of Washington, but most come out of communities like yours, far from the capital. Here and Now Anytime is a podcast that taps into local newsrooms from Maine to San Diego to bring you stories that matter. Get closer to your community and find common ground with people around the world on Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR.
2: Hey, Carlos. Uh, Good morning. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. It's good to hear you, man. Turns out Carlos was part of Echo Company for the 2003 invasion, too. So he served with Jose Gutierrez. He was the Marine memorialized with that first cross on Horno Ridge. They were pretty good friends. And like Gutierrez, Carlos says he first came to America illegally.
5: I grew up in Mexico City. I grew up in Mexico City, and when I was nine, I ran across the border to get to San Diego. We got caught. So I got, got pushing He kept
1: got, trying. And, and looking back now, it's clear from those trips across the desert that Carlos was already driven by character traits that the Marines champion. I called it my first
5: mission, honestly. After being in the Marine Corps, I called it my first mission because basically I was always in the rear, not because I couldn't keep up, but to ensure that everybody in front of me was making, it, making its way forward.
1: He finally made it. grew up undocumented, not far from Camp Pendleton, and as soon as he turned 18, he became a U.S. resident. Basically, just so he could join the Marines.
5: I was told that the Marine Corps was the hardest branch of the military.
2: So I'm like, mm, let's see if that's true. I'd read in that book, No True Glory, about the battle where Carlos had been wounded and how he was recognized for his valor that April. So, uh, forgive my ignorance, did you get a silver star?
5: Yes. Uh, I was awarded the silver star... And I didn't know what Silver Star was, so I had to Google it before I received
1: it. It's kind of strange he had to Google it because the Silver Star is a big deal, just two steps below the Medal of Honor. It recognizes conspicuous gallantry. That means ignoring the danger, putting your life on the line to help fellow Marines in combat.
2: When Carlos got home, he was pretty messed up. Not just his shoulder, but mentally. Sure enough... April comes around,
5: unintentionally, my mindset goes somewhere else. My body reacts differently, emotion-wise. But it's now, it's been so long that my son feels the same
2: way. April April rolls around, his whole demeanor change. He's been in treatment for PTSD, and he's getting better. But Carlos says his family suffered with him.
5: In what sense does it fit that my son's 14 years old, and I tell him, I wish I would have died. In Iraq, rather than come back, not because I don't love you, not because I'm um, because not because you don't mean the world to me, because if I would have died, it would have ended right there.
2: We talked about the incident, April twelfth. That whole month fighting in Fallujah, and how it still lingers for him
1: almost twenty years later. Carlos, he's still the kind of Marine who keeps tabs on his buddies looking to make sure everybody makes it forward. And over the next two years, he helped us to get in touch with some of them, including Ben Leota, Doc Leota, as they call him. Ben was traveling in South America
2: with his girlfriend, a musician, when I reached him. I set up a time to talk, and a week later, I called him from a studio here at NPR. Thanks, Stu. I hear a ring. Hello. Hello. Hey, Ben. Yes, Graham here. Graham. Yep. Yeah, I you doing, Graham? Okay. Hey, thank you so much. He was much in there. the Navy, Sorry, a, a early battlefield early. medic for the Marines. He said he'd the been range. there when the explosion took place. You were corpsman, right? Yeah. Can you tell me, uh, well, would you mind just telling me your, your name and, uh, you know, where you're from, just the sort of basics so I can make sure I don't screw that up? Well,
1: real
6: quick, before we get into it, yeah. I just wanted to ask sure. a questions myself.
2: Absolutely. What is
6: the purpose of your
2: documentary? Well, I'll tell you the truth. Right now, I'm still kind of trying to... I told him about a clue I'd found. Echo Company's captain, Doug Zembeck, wrote a letter to his wife on April 12th, 2004. He wrote, One of my Marines called in a mortar mission. The round landed short, killed two of my Marines. Zembeck's wife published the letter years later in a book about their relationship and his death. But from the letter, it's clear the company commander knew immediately it was friendly fire. And, and one of the things specifically that came out was how long it had taken to notify the families in this incident. Um, so it's about that. Yeah. So that's, where, that's uh, where I'm at. Yeah.
6: I mean, I will say this. I, I am always down for the truth to, to come out. I mean, I think we both understand like, the climate today is insane. And I'm, I, I'm not looking to be a part of a smear campaign that like, meant to make the Marines look bad. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, if believe me. If your goal is truth, I'm, I'm down with that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with Marines over in Afghanistan. I went in uh, 2009 with 2-8 out of Lejeune on the whole, like, insert into the Helmand River Valley and, you know, oh, dropped wow. in with them on the helicopters. So
6: you've been through or the old shit. Yeah,
2: yeah. And uh, let me preface this whole thing by saying I, you know, like... Even after talking to Carlos, you know, I was like back in the zone for like a week, and my wife was like, "Why are you being such a bitch?" And you know, because
6: it's been you know, me this whole week waiting for this call.
2: Yeah, because it 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 you can't not uh, respond to it on those levels, and I, and so thank you.
6: No, I appreciate that, and no problem. Um, yeah, all right. So let's let's do this officially. My okay. name and where I'm from. Yeah. Uh, my name is Benjamin Lyota. I'm originally from uh, kind of all over New
1: York. Was born ben Lyota was just one of the men we talked with as we tried to unravel this mystery about Echo Company. If we are going to get to the bottom of the allegation about a cover-up, we first had to understand more about what happened on the ground. Bill Skiles was there, he's a retired sergeant major, invited us to his house in Virginia but an hour south of DC. Bourbons, if you
2: like, you have, oh, I heard Buffalo. Just <laughs> before speak. we even uh, get into this stuff, I, uh, we are obviously in your marine room or something. You what know, do you call this
3: place? It's my marine room.
2: So some of these are, are replicas of weapons. Well, yeah, these, these are, these are real. He pours these us are a couple real. of whiskeys <laughs> and <laughs> settles down into a leather recliner. Um, so expectations going. We never heard of the city.
1: Skiles was the right-hand man to company commander Doug Zembek. I remember Zembek going on a map in the hallway
3: in, in Camp Horno. We're going to a place called Fallujah, or what the hell? They
1: got back to Iraq in March.
3: In our compound, it was called Camp Volturno, and we renamed it Camp Baharia. a Navy term. We called it Camp Diarrhea. Of course we did. <laughs> Terrible place. So here we are, a battalion of Marines going to Fallujah. Remember President Bush said as of, what, May of o three. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. The war's over. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. (laughs) So, okay, yay. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Anyway, so we go up there and the expectations of all the Marines, I mean, we actually played football. I remember being the quarterback. We
2: spent more than five hours with Bill Skiles that night. Between what he told us, Carlos, and Ben, and dozens of others, plus audio recorded in the city that month, we've pieced together this account of their arrival in Fallujah and the days leading up to the April 12th explosion that killed Brad Shooter and Rob Zurheide. This is Taking Cover from NPR. The economy can sometimes feel
0: like a big, scary wilderness filled with jargon and unreadable charts. The
2: Planet Money
4: podcast is here to help.
0: We love spreadsheets.
4: Yeah, let us be your guide to the global economy.
0: We brought snacks. Is that trail mix? It's actually gorp. That's
5: Planet Money from NPR.
6: When Argentina won the World Cup, it meant so much to so many people. But there's one person in particular for whom it meant everything. Soccer legend, Lionel Messi. In The Last Cup, a bilingual podcast series, I explore why. Listen now to The Last Cup podcast from NPR and Futuro
4: Studios.
0: Up First achieves the rare one-two punches of being short and thorough, national and international, fact-based and personable. Every morning, we take the three biggest stories of the day and explain why they matter. And we
6: do it all in less than 15 minutes. So you can start your day a little more in the know than when you went to sleep. Listen now to the Up First podcast from NPR.
0: Listening to the news can feel like a journey. The 1A podcast is here to guide you beyond the headlines and to cut through the noise. Listen to 1A, where we celebrate your freedom to listen by getting to the heart of the story together only from NPR.
5: We had just gotten the briefs. The
1: new commander had some, you know, words, wisdom. and We were doing all the Mattis, uh, the Mad Dog-isms uh, because he was our division commander. Brigadier General James Mattis. Years later, Mattis served as defense secretary under Trump, but Iraq is where he made his reputation, became an icon in the Marine Corps with nicknames like Mad Dog, St. Mattis. He's very quotable. Um, and, no, no greater friend, no worse enemy. We're here with the velvet glove approach. It's late March. The Marines are in Fallujah to take over from the Army. You will go in there and win the hearts and minds.
5: You gotta be there almost like, as police officers, I mm. Okay, fine. We'll do that. It was, it was something far, far from the
0: truth. We thought we were moving in for, like, security and stability, you know, when the hearts and minds of the people, and it seemed like that was just not something the locals in Fallujah were interested in.
1: One reason? The heavy-handed tactics of the 82nd Airborne, the Army unit they were replacing. I mean, I looked it up, and
6: everything online said it was a hornet's nest. You know, you read everything that the 82nd Airborne went through over there, and uh, we still were, like, more like, we just didn't know what to expect. And then we got there and started asking the Army how everything was. and It seemed like the Army didn't really know what they were doing. And, uh, like, I don't mean to say that just to talk crap about the branches, but from their own stories, they were like, no, we just drive through and like, don't even stop when we hit somebody. And, like, we just shoot when we're shot at without even knowing what we're shooting at. And it's just like, oh, well, then I think there's a
3: reason they don't like you. <laughs> All I know is we prepared for hugging and kissing and, and love and, and, and just spreading the, the gift of, of giving. Battle was thought about a little bit. But interesting to see through satellite imagery during April how many were coming in, crossing the Euphrates to come at us. The great jihad was coming. So then you had the insurgents coming
5: Insurgents became recruiters. Oh, I saw the army shut up your house. I saw the army shoot your hospitals. I saw the army shoot your schools. I saw the army destroy your vehicle, which was your only means of work. Come help us. Get back at them. The army at that time was the best recruiters for the combat that was about to happen.
2: You know, in one way, the army tactics, riding in their vehicles rather than patrolling on foot, worked. For them, they took few casualties. They had one dead,
3: 10 wounded. So they're for, there for six months, seven months, one dead, 10 wounded. And this is important to remember that because the Marines have landed now. We're back. And all of our arrogance, we're back, okay. But this time
5: you can feel the difference. The first time in Iraq, I'm walking through the streets in patrol and people are smiling. They're saying, go push, thumbs up. Mister, mister, we love you, whatever. Second time around going to the streets of Fallujah, the demeanor was different.
3: I remember having pins and we had soccer balls that weren't inflated. I couldn't find air. So we'd throw some soccer balls that were inflated. I remember the kid flipping me off because I gave him a soccer ball without air. You could see hate in the people's eyes.
5: There's no little kids running to us this year. What the hell's going on?
1: The day the Marines took over, there was a mortar attack at Fallujah's city hall. Now, a mortar. If you're not familiar, it's kind of like a grenade, but shaped like a bowling pin. Recently, we watched some Marines train, launching them out of metal tubes set on tripods.
5: When ready, gun one.
1: The round rises high up into the sky and drops down onto the target with a deafening explosion. Boom, a mortar hit
3: here. Then, Okay, it's kind of like, welcome, Marine Corps. Welcome back.
2: Thirteen Americans are wounded. Skiles and Captain Zembek help evacuate the casualties. Get soaked in blood. Once we got back, Zembek and I walked to the chow hall with we the same camis we had.
3: He was a lot more red. But I remember the company looking at us, going, "This is not fucking Kansas anymore."
1: April is fast approaching, and that hearts and minds thing. That's not going well. The day after that mortar attack, the Marines lose their first man. An insurgent fires a rocket-propelled grenade at a Marine truck. RPG hit the Marine
3: vehicle dead stopped. RPG got him and killed him. Next day, General Mattis, personally, they killed a Marine. Send in the Marines. I can't blame somebody for getting revenge. You know, you don't fuck with the Marine Corps. We're back, and how dare you? So, send a company in. We gave everyone a chance to to, to get out,
6: and we basically we dropped leaflets and did loudspeakers, and we we're like, if you, there's a fight coming, if you don't want to fight, get the fuck out of the city right now. Um, and while people were streaming out, fighters were streaming
4: in. Like, we were um, going through this open, like, courtyard thing, and I always thought something was off. We're walking down, and we turn to the right, and I'll never forget, this little Iraqi girl came out, and she kept pointing down, like, she's pointing down the street. And, I mean, I'm looking at her, and am like, all right, either she's warning us or a signal. So it's one of the two.
2: Wow, that's kind of a brave little girl right there. If she was warning, yeah,
4: I guess she was warning us. Because as soon as we turned the corner to the left, shots came down from the roof, everything, and one of them hit Elrod, and they almost got Doc Watt because he was he got against the wall, and all the bullets started spraying up on the side. And I'm like, all right. So it
6: was all video game to me, to be honest. It was (laughs) until someone got shot. It was all surreal. I do remember that. I remember once Eric Elrod got hit, it all stopped being a game thing. It all stopped being interesting. Huh. Yeah. And I started to just get my head right, take it in the right way.
1: The Marine Offensive was having an effect. Two days went by. It was evil. No more
3: mosques. No more prayers. I mean, we went in the city and killed a couple of them, or more, who do first blood. They
2: killed a Marine, General Mattis, go in there and teach him a lesson. We didn't teach anybody a lesson. It turns out the insurgency was waiting for a chance to teach the Americans a lesson. To begin with Iraq this evening, four American civilians were killed there today, and as sometimes happens, the cameras were there for the gruesome aftermath.
3: Here's ABC's John Berman. On the streets of Fallujah, the brutal attack was met with celebration. We are from Fallujah, they chanted. This is our work. Witnesses say the two SUVs were ambushed as they drove through town. It
1: isn't just ABC. The mangled and charred remains of Blackwater contractors hanging off a bridge flash across TV screens around the world. A clear message from the insurgents. They didn't kill them; They killed them
3: 20 times over. They, they, they couldn't get to us, so they wanted to take it out in those four.
1: This is the last thing the White House needs. Almost a year after mission accomplished troops still haven't found any evidence of the alleged weapons of mass destruction. The insurgency is growing stronger. Support for the war back home is dropping. But these are Americans dismembered, burned. The White House doubles down. The Marines are ordered to clear Fallujah.
0: Some of us had recently returned from a a patrol like outside the wire a little bit. I remember uh, just over the loudspeaker announcement was
2: made, you know, all Marines report back to your company areas. Hearts and minds? Forget it. General Mattis is forced to drop the velvet glove. The mission now? Search and destroy. That night, Captain Zembek jumps up on the hood of a truck to motivate the men. It's pitch black, but you see a figure. (laughs) The the, the line of Fallujah, there he is.
3: Marines... This is our Okinawa. This is our Tet Offensive. This is our Saipan. This is our time in history. Pretty cool. And he goes, we're fighting for, look to your left and right. Those are your brothers. You're fighting for him. Don't you ever disrespect or dishonor the American flag and what we stand for To our history of battle in the Marine Corps. That he finishes with this: May the dogs of Fallujah
1: eat hearty off our dead enemy. May the dogs of Fallujah eat hearty off our dead enemies.
5: Oh, you're already
1: By now, it's the early hours of April first. That's when the hornet's nest started.
4: Oh no, that was, that was full on, we're taking over the city and a whole nine. Like, we tried to be nice, now it's, we got to do what we came here to do. And that's where we just started going
3: through. We didn't even allow the idea of what this city is going to look like after the fact influence how we uh, fought. And what I mean by that is, if you needed to put a tank main gun round into a building, you put a tank main gun round into the building. You know, if we needed to blow down trees to clear our fields of fire, we blew down trees to clear our fields of fire.
0: Every day, it was kicking in doors, house-to-house, clearing operations, sometimes with fights, and a lot of times it would be the house next door would have some some bad guys in it, and then the Marines would assault towards that house, and the, the bad guys would pack up and move on down the block some, you know? Um, it was It was kind of like chasing a ghost almost.
2: So, yeah, we... We were in the fight. We had the enemy on their heels. For more than a week, the men of Echo Company and about 3,000 other Marines pushed into Fallujah, dense neighborhoods of concrete buildings normally housing 280,000 people.
7: The U.S. military says some insurgents are using children to spot targets for them and deliberately firing from heavily populated areas inside Fallujah.
2: The Al Jazeera TV network sends out brutal images of hospitals crowded with dead and wounded. Some of them, women and children. Other networks run the footage too.
7: Hospitals are full and doctors say they're running out of medical supplies. Iraqis claim hundreds of civilians have been killed or wounded in the
1: last four days. It's too dangerous to bury the dead. Iraqi politicians threaten to resign if the Americans don't stop the assault. That would be a disaster because the Americans are just about to hand responsibility for governing the country over to their Iraqi allies. So the White House orders the Marines to stop.
5: We've been going go for about a week, and we told to, stop, to cease fire. Like, what? Yeah, cease fire. We don't have to push forward anymore? No, we
3: can't. Okay, fine, cease fire. And, and just to be clear, we, you know, we talk about a ceasefire. A ceasefire was in effect for U.S. forces, but the insurgents didn't have that same order, and so we were in gunfights on a on a daily basis throughout. Well, the, running jo- the running
0: joke was that there was a pause in combat operations and eventually the enemy guys had agreed that they were going to turn their weapons in and stop fighting. It was just that the joke was that they were going to turn in all their ammo first because they never stopped. They never paused. They just kept shooting at us all the damn time.
5: We get to a, uh, um, to a schoolhouse. We stopped there and now we're in the schoolhouse.
2: That's when uh, CNN got embedded with us. Tomasz Etzler from CNN.
7: So what happened, you know, in the morning they took us to the school. They were kind of sticking out from the line of the houses which the Marines occupied behind them.
1: Now, Marines are quick to tell you. In combat, they move, shoot, and communicate. But now, they're forced to hunker down at this schoolhouse.
6: Think of, like, a rectangular-shaped building and there's an open courtyard, so there wasn't no roof. Over that area, I know we were digging in for the long haul because they had me dig a a shitter, and then we, you know, sandbags around the windows, like typical sandbags around the entrances. So we were just kind of like, "Hey, man, let's block this up just in case." Like, you know, mortars were being launched; we knew mortars were being launched.
2: So go forward a couple days. Tell me, tell me about the twelfth.
4: I mean. It's, it started as a normal day. We, like, everybody wakes up, we're smoking and joking, and then... Uh,
5: so we have, our first, we have our first watch in the morning, my team. So we got word that we were going to get attacked at night, so I'm like,
7: okay. Yeah, still kind of a very sporadic gunfight going on. And at one point, and it was already April 12th, the school was hit by uh, RPG. But the RPG hit the corner of the school. You know, it shook the whole school. It shook. You no, know, it made a bit noise. So
0: that morning was the first time I remember getting blown up. I was in a window in that schoolhouse, bent over to pick something up, sat back up, and some asshole shot an RPG at the window. Um, rang my bell pretty good. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let me sleep for like 12 hours. Robert came off post and this kid, instead of sleeping, he sat there for eight hours and just stared at me, making sure I was, I mean, literally just sat there staring at me, smoking cigarettes, making sure I was okay.
1: The Robert he's talking about? That's Robert Zurheide. He'd be dead by nightfall.
6: Zerhide was the nicest person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> I, I don't know how he became a United States Marine. But <laughs> <laughs> he was honestly the nicest person I've ever met in my fucking life. Like, the dude just had a heart of gold. Um, and t- unless you played cards and he cheated <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> and not that good either. <laughs> Dude, that shit was annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, what do you call it? Sorry, was funny, man. And he was like, nothing you've ever met in your life. This dude I'm out, around a bunch of Marines, damn well knowing what the reaction would be, would put on Backstreet Boys and, and do, like, a choreographed practiced fucking dance <laughs> that you would expect, like, the Backstreet Boys to do.
7: So after like one hour, two hours, I don't remember exactly, one hour, two hours in that school, we went back to those positions. Then I had a discussion with the NBC guys, and I told them, listen, let's split up. I thought them, you know, like, because I, I, I think that, you know, if something's going to happen tonight or anytime, you know, it's going to happen in that school. So I would like to be there.
1: He does a quick interview with the company commander around 5 p.m
7: uh what are the biggest challenges your men are facing here in fallujah today
1: that's an easy one the biggest challenges we're facing right now are just uh my men want to go into the city and attack the enemy that's what marines do they're fired up they want to they want to go on the assault so i, I i've got to hold back on the reins to keep them here um uh, keep them uh, from doing that until we're, we're given permission to do so and uh Of course, I informed
7: uh, CNN headquarters in in Atlanta that I will call them every two hours. And in between, I will be, I had like, I don't know, four or five uh, uh, extra batteries, but I had no idea how long I'm going to stay in Fallujah. So I said, listen, I will not have it switched on. I will turn it on every two hours. And I mean, right before we got to rest and the incident
4: happened, that I actually ran to go get the MREs and everything for us to eat. So, I mean, we ran out, ran down the street, hit up uh, HQ, grabbed the MREs, came on back. I mean, just a little simple resupply. And then we went to stand too. And then, I mean, yeah, right after that, that's when everything went down.
7: It was getting dark around after six, after I make my phone call. It was getting dark and the school was on the top of a t intersection there were there were some cars blown up i saw some bodies in those cars and i noticed there were guys on that street running from one side of the street to another and they were dropping tires I
4: ran back into the alleyway then they rolled out another tire. Another,
5: another we
6: kept seeing guys um, setting up tires, and they were doing what they used to do this to set up signal fires. the hell
5: they
6: to do with those So it would help them mortars. Um, so as they were setting up the tires and shit, our guys were shooting them. Why not? Uh, so we knew an attack was coming. Like, we, we could see that they were preparing for an attack. So they told us to be out stand two. I forget what time. That's usually like sunset. Because we were expecting a fight. So everyone was in gear. We had that going for us.
0: Where they were putting those tires up was the same house that shot the rocket at me that morning. Okay. We wanted that house gone. We were uh we were hanging out at
6: this picnic table that was just underneath an awning that was on the side of the courtyard, And some people were sitting down. I was standing, shooter was standing. And uh shooter had gotten a uh, a mail package. Like, he'd, he'd got some mail with some pictures and shit. So he was showing us pictures of his family and his friend went the home, which was Sacramento. And Lake Tahoe. And, uh... Earlier that day... This is a little separate, but it's connected. Earlier that day, I was with Smith and I saw that he had Pop-Tarts. <laughs> so I started begging him for some Pop-Tarts, because we'd, we'd been in... You know, doing this for like ten days or whatever. You miss stupid things. And uh so the the, the we got done negotiating and I was like, I, I the the deal was I would give him an already freaked black and mild. Like you know when you pull out the inside paper of a black and mild and then you put it back together?
2: I do not know so, Is it like making it black, well, but uh, like well, it's not making a
6: blunt. I mean the the principle is similar, yes. But uh the black and miles are cheap. Like they suck in taste. If you take out the inside leaf though, mm-hmm. the taste is actually smooth as shit. It's something weird about Black and Miles that us poor kids figured out. <laughs> uh, so that was the deal, as I would give him an already freaked Black and Miles in exchange for the Pop-Tarts. <laughs> and uh, so while we're all bullshitting, it was me, um, Doug Hyanga, Brad Shooter, uh, uh, who was it? Costello. Um, I think that was it. And Smith walks over and he's like, yo, Doc, he's like, where's my Black and Mild at? And I was like, all right, man, let me let me go do that. I haven't done that yet. So like, I'm walking away with Shooter and we're bullshitting about, we're like finishing up our conversation about Tahoe. And I left him in the center of the courtyard as we had our conversation and I went to walk into the fucking casualty collection point. Like our, the Corman's room. And uh, I had taken like not even two complete steps. And uh, like, I remember seeing a flash in a corner of my eye and I looked back and the next thing I know I'm, I'm on the ground waking up. Like I, I blacked out. I got thrown across the room. I hit a wall. Uh, I was wearing my helmet, but I hit the wall head first and, uh, fucking, yeah, I came too. It was all fucking... Uh, sorry. I'm bugging a little bit. I'm going to hit my weed. But uh, it was... like I could see nothing. You know, it was just dust. And uh, all I could hear was ringing. It was extreme ringing, both my ears. And then uh, suddenly... All of my hearing came back, like the rush of a fucking train. It was like, and then I could hear everything. And it was just screaming, like the worst screaming you ever heard in your life.
1: Ahead on taking cover, that explosion, what was it? We thought it was an Iraqi rocket and they just got lucky with a pinhole
0: shot.
7: One round.
1: And the chaos, the scramble to help the wounded amid a massive firefight. All hell broke loose. Um,
7: There there was fire coming out of everywhere. There was uh, a lot of machine gun fire, a lot of RPG fire. The building was shaken by some of the grenades that hit
1: the building on the rockets. Here's the thing. This explosion at the schoolhouse in Fallujah it should be in the history books as the worst marine-on-marine-friendly fire incident in decades. But it isn't. It's like it was scrubbed from the record. They said he died. I never knew his name. I can't find any document.
2: He didn't go with me. Somebody took him out. Nowhere in this fucking investigation you see that. as a, a sin. As we continue digging up parts of this story, we have to wonder, why did the Marine Corps keep all of this hidden for so long? Why are we the ones revealing what really happened to the very men who were there?
1: I mean, your instincts, I think, are correct. And those questions should be answered. But the worst thing in the world to happen is to break that bond of trust between us and the public, the mothers and fathers who send their sons to war.
2: Taking cover is created and reported by us, Graham Smith and Tom Bowman. Our producer is Chris Haxel. Robert Little is the editor, with help from Kamala Kelker. To hear our next episode early, sign up for Embedded Plus at plus.npr.org slash embedded, or find the Embedded channel in Apple. You'll be supporting our work, and you'll get to listen to the entire season sponsor-free. That's Plus npr.org embedded and thanks to everyone who's already signed up and listening early. We have production help from Nick Nevis. Our music comes from Peter Duchesne, Rob Groswell, Brad Honeyman, and the Hump Muscle Rolling Circus. Sound designed by Josh Rogesen and me with help from Nick. This episode was engineered by Josh Newell. Our researcher is Barbara Van Workum. We've had additional editorial input from Leanna Simstrom, who is the Enterprise Storytelling Unit's supervising producer. Also from the supervising editor for Embedded, Katie Simon, as well as Christopher Turpin, Andrew Sussman, and Bruce Oster. We are also grateful for guidance and encouragement
1: from Lisa Hagen, Chip Brantley, and Andrew Beck-Grace. Edith Chapin is the Acting Senior Vice President of NPR News, Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of NPR's Enterprise Storytelling Unit, and Anya Grundman is the Senior Vice President for Programming and Audience Development. We'd like to thank and acknowledge Eric Neeler and Rick Loomis, journalists who were in Fallujah during the fighting in the spring of 2004 and who shared their recordings with us, and also NPR member station KPBS and CNN. And finally, thanks to the men who shared their stories with us, in addition to those named in the episode, we heard from Jason Duty, Tony Paz, Everett Watt, John Smith, Chris Covington, and Ben Wagner. We'll be hearing more from them ahead.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, NetSuite by Oracle. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution. And that's NetSuite. Learn more at netsuite.com story.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Here and now. It can be a mantra if you need one. And who doesn't these days? We're a show that gives you fresh perspectives on the biggest stories of the day with real people, all in a half hour. Get your world news all in one place. Just remember the mantra, here and now, anytime. A podcast from NPR and WBUR.